Hey, hello and welcome to uh, Witcast from Wisdom and Torah Ministries. This is Rico Cortez, your host. And today we're going to have a very, very cool guest. As you know, I like to get different types of people that I can have a really cool conversation with and trying to talk about either personal life or latest projects or, you know, plans that we're trying to do in ministry and everyday life. But today I have a really good friend of mine and uh, she's been also an influence in my life. Uh, more than she even imagines, and her name is Dina Dye, Dr. Dina Dye. Welcome, Dina. How are you? I'm good, Rico. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here with you. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to interview you a little bit because I find you quite interesting. <laughs> I, think, I find myself quite interesting. <laughs> I think that you are probably one of the worst-kept secrets in the movement. You are. Thank you. I've learned a lot from you. Believe it. Believe me. I've learned a lot from you. And if you want to get in touch with Dina, please consider her website, foundationsintora.com, foundationsintora.com. She is from Canada, living in New Mexico for the last, I'm not going to say how long. Uh, um, but Dina is also an expert on the temple. I think uh, she studied with, you studied with Joseph Good, didn't you? Yeah. Back in the early 90s is when I started studying with Joe. So you're also responsible to do the crazy temple stuff like I am with him too. So we have the same route. And um, and what I, what I really like about your teachings is you, you, you're not really the typical teacher that focuses facts, facts, facts. You, you give the facts in a type of a storytelling. And I kind of like that. And I got to learn from that a little bit because I like facts directly to the point. But the way you seem to uh, establish your books, well, you have two books, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But let me give the names of the book, and then you tell them how they can get in touch with it. By the way, they're, best, they're really good sellers on Amazon. So uh, the first book is called The Temple Revealing Creation, The Portrait of a Family. And the second temple, uh, and the second book is called The Temple in the Garden, Priests and Kings, which I love, by the way. So tell us how to get a copy of this book for those people that may be interested. Okay, so those are, it's a series. The series is called the Temple Revealed series. So it'll be a trilogy. So the first one, it will cover the creation. The second one, the garden. And the third one that I'm working on is Noah. Uh, that one's probably, it'll take me about a year at this point. So uh, Amazon, it's a piece of cake. You can go to Amazon, you can get the Kindle, you can get the paperback, almost anywhere in the world. It's also on my website. You can purchase it there, foundationsandtorah.com. And also, I have a new website called dinadie.com, oh. which is an author website. Okay. So on that website, the books, it, it's just the focus of the book. So you can go directly there. It'll take you to Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. Pretty much anywhere you can purchase a book, you will find the book, uh, Amazon probably being the easiest. That's and awesome. that helps numbers. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's going to be great. Well, I, I pray that... You get a lot of sales. I'm pushing it in the Spanish, in the Spanish audience. I think they really got, they really like it there. People have read some of it already. Uh, I gotta tell you guys, um, I really like the way you're connecting the garden and the temple. You know, as you know, I've been studying the temple for 20 years. You've been studying it a lot longer than me, but I think now with the understanding of ancient Near Eastern context and cultural backgrounds, we are able to start connecting all the dots that we've missed for so many years, connecting the tabernacle, the temple, the feast uh, to the garden. So give us a little rundown about the book that I'm holding in my hand. That is the temple revealed in the garden. Uh, I like the other one. I like the temple revealed in creation, specifically chapters five. Like you told me you were right. 
<laughs> but okay. this one, for some reason, resonated with me in a different way. Yeah. You mentioned something at the fun. course in January. Um, I was talking about new creation, remember? And, uh -huh. and you mentioned just, yes, just like Jonah, I mean, just like Noah, who came out of the garden and he planted a vineyard. That's all you told me. Yeah. And immediately after that, I began, I came home and I began looking more into that. You gave me that lead in and then you came up with your book and I read the first chapter. I was hooked. So I want to thank you for, for the way you presented the information. I really enjoyed it. So tell us a little bit about the book, your angles, what you're trying to accomplish. Well, so as I, you know, what I've been trying to do is give people the big picture. We tend to get bogged down in the details. And I think because we have done that, and, and then when we do that, we put, pull out little pieces, and then we create an entire theology, doctrine, and movement out of one little piece of, an, of a verse. So this is an attempt to get back to what is the big picture? How do I lay a foundation so you can see the forest from the trees? And as I was studying, it occurred to me, I was seeing the language of temple building in just about everything. Of course, that is my filter. But I, I saw creation in the terms of, of uh, architecture, of building. So God was doing something specific to build a temple, and in that case, the cosmos. And then the language of after one completes this sort of cosmic temple building architectural thing, the language moves into agriculture. And there is so much agricultural language in the Bible. Yeah. And, and all of that reflects the... We go from God building a temple and then this concept of rest, which is really a concept of kingship, to the maintenance, the maintaining of the sacred space. And so the maintaining of the sacred space has to do with agriculture because you have, in, in that environment, you've got to grow food to feed everybody. Yeah. So the, that's what Adam is doing. He's growing food in the sacred space as king to feed everybody. And that's where we get sort of the language is the word being the seed and the bread of life coming down from heaven and feeding the whole earth. So the garden was this effort to show people how, how are we now in this sort of agricultural structure. Of course, we have all of the feasts come out of agriculture. Yeah. So yes. when, when we pass, and, and all of this is in the garden, and I'm just sort of pointing ahead. So we come out of that environment and we see that the world is once again in a state of chaos as it was in, in non-order in creation, now we're back to this state of chaos where a temple has to be built again because in a sense it's been, it has collapsed because of sin. So Noah builds an ark, which is a return to architecture. He needs plans and design in order to build an ark. So he builds the ark, which is a temple pattern, and then when he comes out of the ark, what we were just talking uh, earlier, what happens is he builds a vineyard. So it returns us back to agricultural language. Right. So now think of the children of Israel in the wilderness. What do they build? Again, architect uh, architectural language. They build a, a, a tabernacle. And then the goal being to return to the land or the garden to once again agriculture. Once they step over the, the boundary into the land, we return back to the concept of agriculture. So that agriculture with Adam, with Noah, with the children of Israel runs all through. And now we, when we get to the time of Yeshua, we're, we're in a state of chaos. Yeshua restores the kingdom. And so all his language returns us to agriculture. So the, the purpose of redemption in this case will be that we are restored back in the image of God so we can take the mandate of becoming 
gardeners on the earth again, to sow the seed yeah. of, of life into humanity for the purpose of, would you agree with me that the purpose of humanity and the gospel, the purpose of, of, of the gospel, the good news, is that humanity now, through the Messiah, has the access to enter the garden again. Oh, absolutely. In order to do the work they've been called to do, which was to serve and guard the garden, which is oh, cultivating that, language. Our job as a kingdom of priests is to cultivate the garden to feed the nations. Right. Because they're starving, you know, in multiple ways. This is what, this is the purpose of gardening language is to feed people who are hungry. The hungry language is language of exile, being outside the camp. So our purpose as a kingdom of priests is to feed the hungry and the poor, take care of the poor. This is exactly what Yeshua talked about. It is classic language of ancient Near East. You know, one of the things that I was talking, I was talking to my wife and I, I was told her, I said, you know, I finally understand the essence of the Bible. The essence of scripture is to understand the differences between the character of the so-called gods of the nations uh, and the character of the God of Israel, that he is a righteous God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And, you know, now it becomes more clear. Let me ask you a question then. You know, many arguments arise in regards to which veil rented. And, and now that's a moot point because I know it's not the one from the Holy Holies. But now I understand why the veil rented, which was designed as the heavens, according to Josephus. Right. Um, Yeshua dying, and if he is the last Adam, you know, opening the door again to Eden, then the veil renting, and inside the holy place, there's the bread of life, and mm -hmm. there is the menorah, which is designed as an almond tree. Could it be possible that the symbolism behind, the, uh, the meaning behind the renting of the veil is that now through Yeshua, the Messiah, the last Adam, who took the shame of all of humanity, now, now we can have access to the garden to eat of the tree of life. Oh, there's, there's no question. But we can pull that back even farther. Because if you go into Genesis chapter 1, the concept there, just dealing with the very first verse, which is a verse talking about a covenant that has been established between heaven and earth. And so in, in Genesis chapter 1, we have language of, of splitting or dividing. Right. And so heaven and earth are divided, land and sea, night and day, dark and light. And this is covenant language because it, when you make a covenant, two things are divided, like we have the story of Abraham in Genesis 15, an animal is divided. Two things are divided in order to restore them back to one whole. So as we go through Genesis 1, and we see the division of these two parts, um, we start with a whole, we go through the division, and then we end up at Shabbat where it's the, you know, the Sabbath, where everything is restored. The key in all this is the concept of what I would call Yom Echad, or one day. So the, the unity of heaven and earth is synonymous with one day. The key in the division between heaven and earth is what we would call the firmament. So heaven and earth are separated by a firmament. The firmament acts as the veil yeah. between this world and the world to come. Nice. So the greater message of Yeshua's death, of the the veil being rent, is the veil, if you will, in the cosmic temple. Yeah. That is the firmament. So that heaven and earth are restored as one and the unity is, is restored. So this is even a bigger message than the garden. Yeah, because it says that the throne of God is established in the firmament, in the heavens, and there's a separation. Yeah. 
I never yeah, really exactly that before. Yeah, so the veil is the, if that's, you know, there are multiple layers here. So we can start with the cosmic temple's veil, and then we can start with the boundary between the garden and what I call the field. And then as a temple is built, you see that same pattern in the temple itself with a veil in between the Holy of Holies and the holy place and even the like the Babylonian veil that we have in the second temple. These veils are all symbolic of when they are of, of the separation between heaven and earth and when heaven and earth are restored as in a marriage, that is a return to Yom Echad one day, the day of days when there's no need for a temple because it's all one big happy temple. And that's what the uh, after the book of Revelation it doesn't mention a, a temple because all of all of humanity and the earth is going to be restored as a sacred space again. Exactly. I mean, the, this is like the big big message, and everything in Scripture takes keeps taking us back to that same place. So, so okay. the garden pattern is the same. So okay. So this is the issue. Right now, there's so many controversies in our focus on how we study Scripture, and now I, I understand that all the things people thought I was crazy about studying, ancient Near Eastern stuff, culture, motif, uh, legality, the law, all this stuff. So when we look at the Bible from a religious theological book, we're going to fall into a problem because um, the Bible is not designed to be a religious book. The Bible Absolutely is not. designed to be the storytelling of God's uh, sovereignty on the earth and how he's using humanity through a covenantal nature. To maintain the cosmos, to maintain the order, because that's the duty of the king, to maintain the order of yeah. the cosmos. You are exactly right. This is key. When people can recognize this language, ancient Near East language and culture, language of the king, which is absolutely critical if we have any hope of understanding the Bible, and removing ourselves out of this religious paradigm into this covenant paradigm, as I was talking between heaven and earth and the descriptions that we have of the ancient Near East world. Oh my gosh, everything transforms. It is the game changer of game changers. And it's what I said at the beginning. Then we don't get lost in the weeds. We don't take a scripture out of context and we don't create a denomination out of one scripture because it's not a religious paradigm. Right. It is a covenant cosmic paradigm. Yeah, you know, this is something that became so evident to me when I began to study Egyptology. People don't realize how much of the language in Egypt, and it only makes logical oh sense, Israel, yeah. Israel spent uh, centuries in Egypt. So a lot of yeah. language in the Bible is making the contrast between the gods of Egypt and the control, Ma'at, the controller of the cosmos in Egypt, and, uh, and, and, and the Israelites saying, no, it's not the god of Egypt. It's not the gods of well, Egypt. Out of Israel. The story of Adam is actually has language of Egypt in it because we talk about the forming of Adam and the breath of life being blown into him. But if you go back to ancient Egypt, you find the Pharaoh was actually called the heir of all noses because right. what he did, he raised up an underling, he would blow his breath into that. So even in the garden language here, or the forming of Adam, which I maintain is a coronation ritual, not right. a not a substantive material forming, but a forming to become king. That language is straight out of ancient Egypt. Well, I mean, they had what is called the adoption ceremony of the Pharaoh when they take him in front yeah. of the deity or the image of the deity and they move, they touch the mouth. I say significant exactly. that the Pharaoh now speaks on behalf of the gods. Um, so, okay, so as we're studying this and to many people are listening, 
this may be like, whoa, this is like way too much and more than I was bargaining for. So I believe that your book, The Temple Reveal in the Garden, can really help us get a, a really deep understanding of function of God's creation. That's really what Genesis is. Okay. So yeah. what I like about your book, and I want you to tell me a little bit more about it, because I found it interesting how you are telling a story. Uh, you start in the garden, and then you go to, and chapter, let me read the, uh, the chapters here, because you got me really at the at the prologue. You say this. You say, in the beginning, Elohim built a temple called the heavens on the earth through wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. The master craftsman formed the cosmic house from the dual of the seventh heaven. Okay, so to many people, that's like, <clears throat> okay, and? But to me, studying engineers and stuff, I have to highlight it because yeah. it began to really, that Psalm, that Psalm 103, Adonai set up his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Now it gives us a purpose. So you start in Eden. So tell us a little bit about your book. And I'm going to read here real quick. You say Eden, the garden, the field, kings, priests. Those five chapters full of information. But the way you did it was very peculiar. You begin to uh, you begin to tell a story using ancient Near Eastern imagery as to how the story was told. What inspired yeah. you? How did you come up with that? Well, I was trying I was trying to create sort of a mood to go into the book, and I wanted something sort of sounding a little bit otherworldly and. I I read, you know, Psalm 89 and 102 and all these very, was trying to kind of fill myself with that language. And of course, through my research, I thought, how can I present this in a way that is sort of really outside the box, that just uh -huh. kind of stirs people's spirit as they read it? And it? You know, it's only two pages. I mean, and if if you have no context of the ancient Near East world, then it sounds pretty weird. I mean, yeah. I've had a couple of people read it and they wanted to know where I found that the dew was in the seventh heaven or where where was this information? And I said, you know, well, this information isn't anywhere because I made it up. And I made it up based on what I've read and what I understand to set the tone for the rest of the book. Yeah. So they up, uh, the prologue is just two pages. And then we what I did was with the five chapters, I took the sacred space that would be earth. And earth is essentially divided into three parts, if you will. Every uh, every temple in the ancient world had a, what we call a tripartite structure, three, three layers, three levels. And so uh, we could look at heaven, earth, and sea, and the sacred center would be the earth. So now I take the earth, and within the earth we have Eden, the garden, and the field, and the sacred center of the earth would be the garden. So I took this, the basically the tripartite structure of the earth, Eden, the garden, and the field, and made those the three chapters. And then it concluded with the chapter on kings and priests because Adam was the first of the kings and priests in, the, in a dual role and function who served in the garden. So those are basically the five chapters. You know that uh, very well done, by the way. Um, you, you, it's interesting that I've always wondered, you know, I've been studying temple and that's my passion. That's really what I focused a lot of my study. I had to kind of... Uh, mix ancient Near East and uh, first century culture to give myself a break from all the studies on the temple. And I still did not understand certain things. So I want to bounce this off of you because um, we know that Adam was, if we if we go by what rabbinical Judaism says, that yeah. Adam shined. He was like light. And mm -hmm. 
We know when Moses went up, went up to the mountain, when he came down from the presence of the Lord, uh, after six days, that's an enthronement ceremony. That's the same yep. same pattern yep. as in Genesis, right? Yeah. So the whole issue of Mount Sinai is a new creation uh, uh, theme. It's a uh, Eden restore, really. If Israel, let me ask you this: If Israel would have obeyed the covenant and become the, Emmanuel, in other words, to become God on the earth again, in the sense of representing representing God as Adam, because Adam mm -hmm. is not only a person but it's humanity. So. Mm -hmm. Israel is Adam if they do what is right. So one of the things that I connected was, and, you know, please add more to it or correct me if I'm wrong, is that the thresholds in the temple, like you talk about the three different uh, areas. You got the court of the women, the court of Israel, the court of the Kohanim, the priests, and then the holy place and the holy holies. But you notice that only certain people can go far, you know, to certain thresholds, you know, to certain areas of holiness, yeah. sacred spaces. And I always wondered, how come the priests had to wear white? I mean, the Sumerian kings, I'm sorry, the Sumerian priests, they did the uh, their sacrifices naked. You know, I mean, in Egyptian, they did it differently. Well, why in Israel, they have to wear white? And why is the high priest have to be perfect? That's because he represented Adam. So that means that the, the, the area of the Kohanim, the priest, the Azara, which is the priestly courtyard, represented going into a sacred space of holiness where the garden was. Okay, That's so let me, before you get too far, because I'm going to forget what I need. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. But you've got to rethink Adam, Moses in terms of kingship. True. And the adoption of the king. And so when they entered into the sacred space, uh, into what we would call, I would design, you know, the as Eden as the Holy of Holies or whatever, the top of the mountain is the Holy of Holies. Right doing is they were exiting this world and entering into the world outside of time they were being raised up as kings and where their ceremony and their adoption and enthronement picture is is in the holy of holies in the world outside of time what we talked about initially and so as the king is being raised up then this is typical in the ancient near east world it was that he no longer was a a human man if you will yeah as he became king he now became as if a god uh -huh. he became uh he was born again to uh -huh. what we would say are heavenly parents instead of earthly parents this is key right so you think of um i think this answers the question of in, in yeshua uh, in the situation with yeshua because he was his whole life is him being raised up as king and we have this imagery like of the transfiguration of his white robes and his, you know white and this is so let me without getting too crazy here in in the book of revelation we constantly go between the temple what would be the temple on earth and the temple in heaven mm -hmm. and so the description of angels are the description of what humanity would look like in the world outside of time messengers like absolutely. they look like angels they're in white yeah that's how the king looked and so yeshua is going through an enthronement ceremony through his whole life through various things that happen transfiguration is an example Right. And then he talks about not having mother or brother, you know what I mean? Like, why is he saying he doesn't, where's my mother? I don't have a mother, you know, where are my brother? I don't have brothers. Because he has been enthroned and the king no longer has earthly parents and brothers and sisters. The king now has godly parents. So, so in the case of Adam, his parents, if you will, God himself, and I don't know if I should even get into that, 
Um, but you see what I'm saying? The king is, not, is no longer born on earth. He is now born again from above in heaven. You know, one thing that I studied in, in Egyptology was that when a pharaoh was getting ready to go into, he's a son of a pharaoh, but the pharaoh yeah. was going to die. The, the father of pharaoh was going to die. Well, then they have to take, they have to take the, the younger son, uh, the soon-to-be pharaoh, and he could only be enthroned in the, in the presence of the deity. Right. The deity now does the enthronement ceremony to give them the right of that kingdom. Well, when uh -huh. you read the book of Revelation, you see the same thing. Yeah. Now Yeshua sits at the right hand and he takes the book from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And now the, from there, all the knees bow. And, um, and, and it's quite interesting because it follows exactly the ancient Near Eastern principles of enthronement that hardly anyone studies. Dina, this is the problem we're having, that 99% of the people struggle with Yeshua that are rejecting Yeshua. They have no clue about ancient Near Eastern principles and motifs. So now they think that Yeshua is not the son of God because they go to a Christian argument talking to a Jewish Orthodox and because they don't understand the, the mindset of the New Testament and the message is trying to convey which modern Judaism does not understand today anyway, because they don't study. I'm going to make the point. Exactly. Uh, you cannot be, um, I mean, I'm not saying you can't read, <laughs> you know, and study, but re modern rabbinic Judaism is not going to help you understand this stuff. Modern Christianity is not going to help you understand this stuff. Really, it is absolutely essential to go back and understand the ancient Near East world. Now, I know we don't want to get lost in it, but we, in order to make sense of the scriptures, we have to understand the context of that world. And the key, I think, in all of it is you have a temple, sacred space, which is the palace. And then you have the king who sits on the throne and meets out justice for the, the sacred space. Justice. And that's the sacred mind. space up to the whole world. We're going to go back to justice. Keep going. So the king is the arbiter of justice. The king was given, in the ancient world, the king was given that by the god to be able to rule rightly and govern his kingdom. If he governed well, prosperity and blessing came on the people. If he didn't govern well, if he was a bad king, it, it meant destruction, it meant the people were impoverished, it meant the people would be exiled. So you wanted to have a good king so that you lived under a just and righteous system. You know that... So the Go ahead. You know that in Matthew, and there was a very interesting, when you go to Matthew 14, right? And it uh -huh. talks about, you know, John the Baptist being beheaded by Herod. And it talks about the, the Herod the Tetrad, right? That he is yep. the king, but he is an oppressor killing the prophet, right? Yeah. And then immediately in verse 19 and verse, I can't even see anymore, verse 13. Now listen to what the, the contrast, it goes from one event, which sometimes read, people read it, they don't understand it. But the writer, Matthew, did an amazing job showing Yeshua as that Adam being the righteous, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yep. Now Yeshua heard this. He went away from uh, privately by boat to an isolated place. But when the crowds heard, they followed him on foot from the town. And Yeshua came ashore. He saw a large crowd and felt compassion on them. And heal mm -hmm. the sick, and then he fed them. What a great contrast Matthew's making between the duty of 
Herod, who's supposed to be the king, who's supposed to do righteousness and has become an oppressor, versus the son of God, you know, who is compassionate and who is the king, uh, who's going to be a king of righteousness. Well, and look what it says at the end. What did he do? He fed them. Yeah. That is the job of the king in the garden. The, the king was called a gardener. He cultivated the space in order to feed the people. This is a classic statement that you sh that's being made here, that Yeshua is the rightful king. If The kingship language is key to the whole thing. It is repeated over and over and over again. It's so, absolutely essential. When God puts in the garden, he put the two trees. Yeah. It's, it's the same pattern of Deuteronomy chapter 30. I put before your life and a blessing, death and a curse. He's give them a choice. But that means that God is a righteous king because he is providing food for his kingdom. Yes, you can't survive without food. You, I mean, the nature of our bodies is you can't, you know, you can't go very long without eating. So we have all this growing food and eating thing. This is totally connected to the garden. Yeah, you know what's amazing? It, I think I think so incredible that biologically, even the function of planting a seed have been um, by God has been placed even in the sexual act between a husband yeah. and a wife. So, exactly, and this is why abortion is such an abomination because you are supposed it's killing to the seed. exactly, and you are eliminating the image of God on the earth. Exactly, I, I talk about that all the time. See, our body. Yeah, I, this thought is my, what you I thought that was my deepest revelation, Dina. You oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I've already talked. Well, I, this and this is the reason. This you you just. You just re uh, veered into something without even realizing it. Um, this is the reason that the body is a temple. Uh-huh. All the function that you're talking about of the seed and of growing food and, and having to eat food, this is all this comparison takes us right back to temple language and kingship. And this is the comparison that, that Paul is making. It's not, you know, we're not running around like little mini temples. So but this is the context for the human body because... Uh, ultimately, it, with the restoration of the heavens and the earth, the restoration of the covenant is the body raised up to dwell in the world to come. So, so that means that when it says Emmanuel, all of Israel could be Emmanuel because, yes, because God Israel dwells is, with us. Yes, because Israel, the pattern is of kingship, that the, the king dwells in on the throne in the sacred space and rules and reigns. So we went from Adam, then to Noah, and then through the, the patriarchs to Israel. Israel is supposed to function as a king, seated in the sacred space, ruling and reigning from that space out to the nations, feeding the nations and bringing them into sacred space. Eventually, there will be no boundary between sacred space and the nations. But while there is, Israel is supposed to function in the same way that Adam has as king, ruling rightly with justice. Now, what were they given to rule rightly with justice? They were given the adut, the testimony of God, which is the Torah. That is how they were supposed to govern the world in order to feed the nations. Right. That is our job. That's why Yeshua, when he resurrected, he he thought they thought he was a gardener. And the woman went up to see him. They thought That's he exactly. was a every every king in the ancient world was called a gardener. That was their t one of their titles because gardening was so important. And I mentioned this in my book. So if a king like the king of Assyria conquered 
an empire or whatever, one of the first things he would do is he would go to that other king's palace or temple and he would take the royal shrubbery and the saplings and the seed and he would bring them back to his own garden and he would plant them there. That was a statement of conquering, that he has conquered this guy and he has taken their trees and their saplings and their what they grow and he's put them in his own garden. And he is declaring himself to be king. And he, you know, that's like putting the foot on the neck, you know, of a conquered king. Well, yeah. You know, the more I study this stuff, the more I realize how much I don't know. And I kind of like that idea to keep learning all the time. Because now, all of a sudden, the letters of Paul are not just truly what Peter said is right. If you are unlearned, unskilled, you can, you're going to take the letters of Paul and bring them to your own destruction. Because Paul is not writing in the language of modern-day Judaism, or even first-century no. Judaism. I think no. Paul, is on, he understood clearly, when he went away, I think he really understood clearly what the mandate. I mean, he was so adamant about getting Gentiles in the kingdom because uh, when, when getting humanity back to the garden, that's the yes. whole bottom line. You getting know? all of humanity into the sacred space. Paul's yeah. language is creation-oriented. It is cosmic temple-building language through and through. And again, we take it out of that context and we put it into a modern religious uh, interpretation. We are making a huge mistake because Paul clearly, you know, got this. And he's communicating it in that style, but we're, we're looking at it from our modern, uh, our modern lens. And then we just make assumptions and associations that aren't even there. Yeah. That, that is true. And this is a sad thing because when you study, when we look into um, the temple, for example, the tabernacle, I'll, you know that I really enjoy the protocols of the temple. There is also the gate liturgy. The scholars call it the gate liturgy. And I never really quite understood what that was until you study the temple. And then you see in the court of Israel that only that was the threshold for the Israelites to go beyond that point. Well, that happens to be the Nicanor Gate. That happens mm -hmm. to be the presence of God. That happens to be the place where the cherubs were placed, you know, somewhere in there. So that means that humanity can only go so far to interact. And all the prayers deal with exalting God as the king, sovereign, creator, righteous, justice. So all of a sudden, now Yeshua dies and that veil rends. We still have to respect respect the sacred space of the temple because all of restoration has not happened completely yet. But the type right. of shadow of, okay, humanity in its fallen state can only go this far. But yeah. that's, 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 that's the resurrection. Huh? This is resurrection language. Right. In this body, we can only go so far. And so once the heavens and earth are restored, the boundary, the firmament is removed, if you will, then you see the, the, the complete restoration of humanity in white robes in the world to come yeah That's all temple language right you know i presented at a congregation sabbath as a sacred space and an enthronement ceremony yeah uh, for kabbalah shabbat and then i finished by telling them you know what amazes me is that the lord judaism has done a great job preserving the prayers of kabbalah shabbat or the reception of the shabbat mm -hmm. not being a kabbalist it means receive no, no, yeah, receiving the Shabbat, yeah. Receiving the Shabbat, and, and all of a sudden, I, I got it. It's like, wow, your house becomes sacred space. Your house becomes a microcosm of Eden. Your house becomes 
peaceful, shalom. You know that. And you are the king seated on the throne in your home. So we are the guests. Yeah. We are the guests at his table. And then we're able to welcome the Shabbat. So we are welcoming the king. You know. Again, the whole Bible. Adam was a king serving in the garden. He was king and high priest, if you will. And in that role, and he wore white robes because he, the picture was of the world, the angels outside of time. And that description we have of, of the, the skins uh, that he, you know, what his skin looked like, like it was like colors. I can't remember the term that yeah. was used. But everything, everything takes us back to that because when the king was raised up, he didn't look like a man. He didn't look like an ordinary flesh man. He looked like one of the gods, if uh, you he will. He was the messenger of that God, the royal messenger of the God. Yeah, that's absolutely. What the, absolutely. That's what the priests are. Dina, I want, I want to really make a quick point here because I don't want people to misunderstand what we're trying to say. All right. I like to focus a little bit about the difference between function and the office of the priesthood because we know that the master plan of God is to restore Eden again, all of humanity. And that's why in the millennial, after the millennial reign, there's not a mention of a temple. There's not a mention of a priesthood because all of humanity will come back, be restored to the original intention of God in the garden. We know that. But right now, the the motif or the, or, or the, or, or the, the, the parallels of the function of a priest, that doesn't mean that the office that God gave to the Levites is done away with but that the office given to the Levites and the Kohanim, the priests, sends as a foreshadow and teaching us what our duty should be as the kingdom of God. Would you agree with I, that? I, I would absolutely agree. I mean, the we are physical beings in a physical body. And the only way we are going to know our function and purpose is to have some sort of example before us. And so they are certainly, everything that they did is a pattern of function to teach us of how it's supposed to look right. and you know clearly we don't have the sort of the temple standing and god ruling and reigning from that sphere but because of, of what yeshua has done and sent out his kingdom of priests which is us to the four corners of the earth we are supposed to function in that mode now clearly it's not going to be exactly that's outlined in the torah that is simply right. not possible I understand. but I understand. where where we find ourselves we need to operate as close to sacred space as possible. I mean, it's a, it's a game changer when you recognize your body, your family, your community as sacred space for the place of the presence of God. If there's contamination and corruption in that sacred space, he's, he's not going to be there. Uh, absolutely. And, but right now there's a, there, there's a mindset going around that now we are gathered away with the Levitical or the the, the, the the sons of Aaron, and that now we are all priests in the Old Melchizedek, which the Bible does not support that. Yeah, I have a whole other theory on that, but maybe another time. You know, um, and, the thing, and the thing is that they are usurping the authority God gave to the sons of Aaron, when in fact, because of our, because what we are now in our in creation we should learn about what the office, like you said, the sacred space, the office, the, uh, the the services, and the function of the priesthood. Because every time I pray for someone, I'm interceding on their behalf. Yes. I'm functioning yeah. as a priest. Yeah, yeah. Factor. If I gather somebody and take them to the Lord to intercede for him, that's what the priest will do. 
Well, see, without the Torah, we don't know what contamination and corruption is. True. That's the only way we know. And then we, and obviously all of it, we can't, I mean, it's not all going to work, but we, it, it, you can apply the principle. So in principle for today, what is causing contamination and corruption in your sacred space? And now you, you, you know, if there's a certain period of exile and getting the contamination out or whatever, so that that sacred space can be re restored and that the, the, the presence of God can move back in. Yeah. I, I just think, that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the problem is that many people, when they come from the systems of religion, they're not really taught into these principles. So now they're looking for the sense of identity and they are, they are usurping yeah. an authority God gave as a blueprint to teach us uh, yeah, how to live a holy life. And now they make ownership of it and, this, and do away with the commandment. And that's a problem. We yeah. have to be more careful. I, I really don't have a good answer for how to approach this other than trying to keep this whole thing out of the religious uh, realm, the theological realm, the doctrinal realm, and return it to just, you know, what is God saying about his sacred space? I don't really know. I mean, other than I do, you know, I instruct wherever I go. I write books wherever I can. And I answer questions. Um, but, you know, as far as the greater humanity, or I don't, I, you know, I can only work within the sphere of influence that I work in. I hear you. That Me too. I'm trying to work on that. I think that, but I, I tell you though, your books and the way we teach in this topic has brought more clarity to a lot of this stuff because they never really consider some of the backdrop and cultural backgrounds that we use. That when you read it in context, it lines up with scripture. It doesn't do away with anything. It lines up with scripture. Not at all. It makes scripture make sense. Right. Let me give you an example of that. We talked a little bit before the the recording, and I want to really finish the next 15 minutes on this because I think it's important that we cover this. This is an example of understanding the role of Jubilee in the ancient world and how we connect it to the Bible and the connection of the temple, sacred space, Yom, Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonement, and the declaration of the Jubilee and what the Jubilee represents, not only in the Bible, but to the ancient Near East, then it makes sense. In Hebrews chapters 9, verse 22, it says, And nearly everything is purified in blood according to the Torah. And apart from the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But the problem is, the word forgiveness is the word, word aphesis in the Septuagint, which means pardon, cancellation, cancellation, removal in the context of the Jubilee. The word aphesis appears like 50 times, and 25 of those times appears in the context of Jubilee. Five mm -hmm. appears in the context of forgiveness of debt in Deuteronomy chapters 15, and a few times in the context of um, number Leviticus 27. So what we have here is now understanding the Jubilee in the scope of all of this. Because we know Messiah is coming in a jubilee. But let me ask you this. So when Yeshua died and resurrected, that's the announcing the end of the exile, that God has forgiven through Messiah the debt. The exile is over. They can return. Now I know why Peter is enticing them in First and Second Peter to return. That remember who you were. You were a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You, you come from darkness to light. Mm -hmm. am, I, am I safe to say that the book of the Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews is teaching us that Yeshua is our high priest, 
now announces the end of the exile that started in 2,000 years ago has not come to its complete completion. It's not been completed, but that the debt that kept humanity from the garden has been eliminated and that Israel is the vehicle in which God uses to become the kingdom of righteousness to restore all of humanity because that's what the Jubilee is, restoration of justice, restoration of property and everything. Well, and, and let's talk the restoration of property because it returns back to its rightful owner. Right. And the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Amen. And so this is a that is the classic picture of the return of the land to its rightful owner, God himself, in or not just returning it, but for a purpose and a function, once again, to cultivate. So at, at the Yovel, this is all again about land and cultivation yep. because Jubilee, the Shemitah, everything is related to cultivating the land and growing food and feeding the people because the heartbeat of, of Yeshua always, it always keeps, it brings up to, to feed the hungry. And so it, again, this, the, the, the Yovel is signifying the restoration of that and the, the bringing in of the nations and into the sacred space because it's God's sacred space. So all of the nations, you see, there's always a division between the nations and his, his set aside priests and Kings. There's a divide between the two and yeah. one is supposed to rule over the other. But what you have all through the Bible is you've got the nation, the ruler of the nations competing with the ruler of the, of the Kings of the, of, of the Kings of the kingdom. Right. And the whole, of the Bible, the whole of the Bible is these two kingdoms in conflict all the way through. So the idea is to put down the nations and the rulers of the nations in order for God to and with His Messiah to rule over the nations. This is very important. People do not see this, and so they don't see what's uh, some of the language in the Bible is talking about the kings of the nations. It's not talking about you know. It's not a they make they interpret it wrongly because they don't understand that concept so for well, example trees, trees were kings they're not they're not just people they're kings uh, and we have the the uh the pharaoh and the king of assyria and the king nebuchadnezzar they're all described as trees who grow up and create a canopy over the whole earth and everyone comes the birds and all that in the trees it's everyone coming under their sovereignty they're being subject to the king this is the right. description of trees so uh yeah I think I veered off a little, but yeah, this the, no, the, the Yovel is critical. Yeah, the Jubilee is critical, like you said, and, uh, and and the thing is that if we do not consider the research on the Day of Atonement, the letter to the Hebrews is not going to make sense. And right. But now, what, what understanding that word there, it narrows the the context of the letter to the Hebrews, not just to any Day of Atonement that happens once a year. But it's talking about the Day of Atonement that happens when the Declaration of the Jubilee. Yeah, and that's that return to what I talked about earlier, one day, Yom Echad, the unity of heaven and earth. That's exactly what Hebrews is about. You know, in every synagogue, every Shabbat, they always sing, Bayom HaHu, Bayom HaHu, Yahweh Echad. Okay? On that day, on that day, his name shall be one. And And the Shema is a declaration uh, that he see I personally struggle I mean I don't know if anyone else did but I'm like okay God is one what does that mean like I honestly didn't really didn't really understand it till I began to see the concept of covenant right and when something is restored, it is one and that's what it's it's declaring that kingship 
the restoration of heaven and earth where God rules over everything and his that's when his name will be one because well, it is one day Yom Achad. That's the purpose of Yeshua to restore, to manifest the name of God so that all things, so that God may be all in all. Yeah, uh, uh -huh. I think that if we don't consider hierarchy of the engineers, we're not going to understand yeah. the language of hierarchy in the book of Revelation and the Gospels. And we see Yeshua as the gardener. We see Yeshua as, you know, that priest. We see Yeshua as a figure of the king. We see Yeshua in all the shepherd. We see the Yeshua, Yeshua as the fisherman, which I'm doing a really yeah. good study on that, and the, and the motifs about fisher, uh, fishermen of men, fishers of fish, and what that meant in the ancient world. But if we do not go back to the garden and look at the garden as a temple text, and I, and I got to tell you, it, it changes everything in Scripture because now you see the whole pattern. Talk about the book of Ezekiel making sense now. Uh-huh, yeah. Coming yeah. from the exile, they got the chariots, they got the temple being restored, the priests are being restored. For what purpose? So that the Lord can be all one, so that all can be restored again. And then what I find really amazing is that the Bible doesn't mention anything on the eighth day. We know that the seventh day is the enthronement ceremony. Mm -hmm. If we follow the same period uh, and pattern, that means that the eighth day is going to be restoration to Eden. Because you see that mm -hmm. all the time. It's the new beginning, new cycle. So now I understand why we must live forever. We have to dwell with, he's going to dwell with us. And that to me, that's we, exciting. Yeah. No, and again, it's so th this contrast, I mean, I can't emphasize this enough because the, the rulers and kings of this world are oppressors and tyrants and despots and dictators. They starve people. They oppress people. They right. destroy everything the people produce. And then you contrast it with our God, our King, Messiah, who came to feed the poor and the down, take care of the downtrodden, lift up those who were brought low and heal the sick and all of that. The, 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 the contrast between the two could not be greater. So you had, when a king came to town and was ruling over you know, your empire, you wanted a king like Messiah. And virtually none of them turned out to be like that. And so along comes in the first century this one at this particular time in history. And he, you know, you have got the greatest empire on the planet, bar none, since the beginning, Rome, you know, Caesar, and then you've got Herod, and then you've got the temple elite who are, I mean, the temple is the, the central institution of everything, the judicial, the commercial, the economic, the uh, religious, you name it, sent ground zero. Yeah. And the temple elite have lorded it over the people as well. And it is into that that Yeshua comes, and he hangs on a tree, the connecting point between heaven and earth, and he restores heaven and earth. He restores that covenant, not in its fullness, but he restores that covenant, and he sends out his, those who are his, to feed the poor and take care of the downtrodden. It makes me very upset when people in this movement do not recognize the value of those who are doing that work across right. the globe. You know what I'm saying? That is the heartbeat of the king well, to do this. This is why yeah. Christianity prospered in the Middle Ages because they took care of those oppressed. In the first century, 
we got, it's like I always teach about the caste system in the first century. Can you imagine you go into Rome and there's all kinds of oppressed people by Caesar who's supposed to be the son of God and, you know, and everything. And then all of a sudden Paul comes around and he tells them, hey, I was a slave. We were slaves in Egypt and our God is a, is a free, is a God of freedom. And let me show you the story. And by the way, our God sent his son so that you will have equity in the kingdom and you'll also have the same freedom. I mean, the message of the gospel, the good news of that, you can come back to the garden. You can come back to an inheritance. It was an honorable thing, and it was the message that we have so fallen from, away from, because we're pursuing knowledge. Dina, yeah, exactly. really cool hour. Um, if you want to get in touch with Dina, I highly recommend. This is only a little glimpse of what we talk about, and yeah. <laughs> it's really Just cool. Just listen really in here. So yeah, there's just, I mean, there's so many places that we can go. But I, I think the concept of, of us, you know, being gardeners out, out in the field where it's very difficult to cultivate because the garden, yeah, it was lush with water and everything grew really well. And then Adam was exiled into what I call the field, which is the world, and where nothing grows all that well and there's not a whole lot of water and it's very difficult to cultivate. But yet the father still the the, the uh, vocation is still upon us to go out into the field and cultivate the, the earth and bring and feed the poor you know to, so to bring the message of the gospel to the nations amen and sow the seed of righteousness amen and, and be arbiters of justice amen we, are, we can impart we can meet out justice because we have been given that attribute as kings to be able to govern in this in the space right uh, it's a huge responsibility at the same token. It's an amazing honor that the God of Israel has given us through his son, Yeshua. And I want to thank you, Dina, for being here with me at the Whitcast. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. I liked the conversation. To some of you, you may be thinking, what in the world did they just say? How do I get a hand on all that stuff? Well, you can visit foundationsintorah.com. Dr. Dina Dye, and she has two books and many, many teachings that talks about this topic. The Temple Revealing Creation. Uh, what was the name? Uh, what was the, uh, a portrait of a family? A portrait of a family, yeah. And, the and then the temple, temple Revealed in the Garden, Priests and Kings. I like both your books, but I really like your second one. Well, the second one uh, is shorter and was much harder to write. I battled with that book, but I knew when I was finished, it would. I thought it was better than the first book. I thought it was easier for people to engage, especially all the story, all the fictional stories in there to help them understand the language and context of the yeah. ancient Near East world. And, uh, but it was a hard book to write. I have to tell you. Well, you got to do a lot of research, just like we have to do a lot of research. You know how much we study, and we oh still don't know anything. Yeah, for you know, you could study something for seven hours, and you present it to people, and it's about three minutes. Right. Oh, hello. People that have no idea, that's what we go through. They think, yeah. like, oh, man, they're so smart. No, you know how many hours I have to spend researching one topic, and then when I talk about it, I run out of things to say in five minutes. I'm going, yeah, oh, exactly. I keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> and I talk fast anyway. Dina, it's yeah. a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being my friend and a teacher to me. Uh, I've learned a lot from you. Uh, you keep always say, be surprised every time I tell you that, but you have always also pushed me to think outside the box and to look into all the areas. And um, what I like about our relationship is that we always focus on those things that help us grow. We don't focus Amen. on the things that will divide. Yeah. And I really appreciate no, the friendship. 
Well, I appreciate you. I thank you for having me on. And, and you know, we do push one another, you know, to grow. And that's good. Well, that's the whole idea, right? No competition. We work for one king. No, never. Yeah, that's the biggest danger of all. And so we really guard our hearts against that. And, and we, I think we've both really grown a lot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, great job on the book. I'm very happy and proud of you. And please go get it. It's an incredible book. Amazon, Amazon.com. Please go check it out. And let's help our sister promote the word of the seed of the Lord all over the nations. Shalom. We'll see you guys. Shalom. And stay tuned for the next uh, uh, Whitcast we're going to be doing. And, and, uh, and I know that you're going to have fun with us talking about different topics and different approaches to study of the Bible. Shalom. Welcome to all of you. Bye-bye.